You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. We instinctively recognize that the last thing that somebody says is usually pretty important. So we tend to pay extra attention when we come to the conclusion of a book, or we listen more closely when we know that a sermon is finally drawing to an end. Uh, Likewise, we tend to put great weight on somebody's last words. And, you know, when we think about a conversation we we had with a friend, we're more likely to think about how it ended than how it started. Endings are significant. And today in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the end of Jesus' third block of teaching in this book, his Sermon of Parables. And we're going to see today in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52, that Jesus indeed in these final words has some very important things to say to his disciples and also to us. Today we're going to see three critical truths that we each need to know and remember in this life. Number one, we must seek the kingdom of God. Number two, we must not reject the king. And number three, we must learn God's word so that we may pass it on to others. So if if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of what's going on in this book. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee since chapter 4. And he's been preaching and he's been performing amazing miracles. He has proven himself to be the Messiah. And yet, despite demonstrating clearly who he was, the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus has encountered have rejected him. In fact, his own family has rejected him. And the vast majority of the common people in Galilee have also rejected him. Now, these common people will still form crowds around Jesus when they have the opportunity, hoping to get benefits from his supernatural powers, but they will not obey his call to repent. They will not receive him as their Lord and King. And Matthew 13 starts right after Jesus has endured these terrible rejections. And at the start of the chapter, Jesus walks out of a house where some of these rejections took place. And he walks down alone to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But right away, the crowds form up and they start mobbing Jesus again. And things get so intense that some people have to bring a boat for Jesus to get into so that he isn't crushed by the crowds. And then from this boat offshore, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds on shore. But this time Jesus does something very different. He doesn't speak to them plainly like has been his custom up to this point. Now he speaks to them in parables. He tells them stories that have a spiritual meaning, a spiritual significance, but that true meaning is not immediately obvious. And Jesus told the crowd four parables. But while Jesus told the crowds the stories, he didn't tell them the explanations. The crowds were left in the dark. And having finished these parables, Jesus left the crowd and went back into the house where he had started the chapter, and his disciples followed him. Now, back in the house, Jesus spoke with his disciples about the sermon that he has just given. 
And in this conversation, Jesus first reveals why he is now speaking in parables. And this chapter has told us three reasons why Jesus taught in parables. First, to judge the unbelieving crowds by hiding the truth from them. Second, to increase the knowledge of his disciples who had already received some spiritual enlightenment from God. And third, we saw last week, Jesus also spoke in parables to fulfill the Old Testament. But not only did Jesus tell his, his disciples why he was teaching in parables, he also explained two of his parables to the disciples, the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. And this is where we pick up today. Jesus is still talking to his disciples in the house, and now he tells them some more parables. And here we come to our first point. And in this point, we're going to see two parables in which Jesus tells us that we must seek the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. This parable has a few similarities with the parables that Jesus has just told the crowds. For starters, there's a field, and again, there's a man in a field. But really what's important here is that this parable is also about the kingdom of heaven, or what the other gospels call the kingdom of God. That was the subject of all four of the parables he told the crowds, and it's going to also be the subject of the three parables he's going to tell the disciples. So what is this kingdom of God? Well, it's that which Israel has long anticipated. This world is filled with evil, but God is good and righteous. And eventually his patience ends. Eventually he will act in this world. His, his good rule will burst forth. Now the Israelites expected this would happen all at once. That in a moment the, the kingdom would come in its fullness and subjugate and conquer and, uh, this world and would condemn evil and establish the, the righteous messianic kingdom. But we saw last week, Jesus says, ah, that's not actually how the kingdom comes. The kingdom doesn't all come in just one sudden cataclysmic moment. Rather, the kingdom begins in a small and humble way. The kingdom began in Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> and it was going to grow organically over time. Exerting more and more influence, transforming more and more things as it grows. But, to be sure, Jesus says, a day is coming. At the end of history, when the kingdom of God will collide with this world. When Jesus will, in a moment, conquer and subjugate all evil in this, on this planet. When history as we know it will end. But the kingdom that comes on that last day is the same kingdom that Jesus was bringing in and proclaiming 2,000 years ago. And it is the same kingdom that Jesus invited people then and he invites us now to receive by repentantly following him. So now again in verse 44, Jesus speaks about this kingdom. And he paints for us a word picture of a man discovering buried treasure. If you're like me, when you hear the words buried treasure, you think of a pirate story. But buried treasure was not nearly so fanciful to the people of Jesus' day. Because they lived in a time before banks and before safety deposit boxes. They lived in a time when... To be rich did not mean having a big stock portfolio. Rather, being rich in the ancient world meant you actually possessed large quantities of gold and jewels. And rich people in the ancient Near East had a problem because their region was often subject to foreign invasion and banditry. 
So think about it. If you've got a big stash of stuff, and here come the Assyrians, and they're going to conquer and kill and steal, what do you want to do with your stuff? You're going to leave it out in the open for them to take? No, you'd bury it in the ground. The problem was, many people who buried their treasure in the ground hoping to reclaim it never did, because they got killed, or they forgot where they put it. And so by Jesus' day, there was a fair amount of buried treasure in Galilee. And occasionally, people who were farming or building a road would stumble onto a trove of treasure. And understand that when people in the ancient Near East discovered treasure like this, for them, that would be like winning the lottery for us. It was something very, very unlikely to happen to you. But which did occasionally happen to someone in your area. And you knew about it, and whoever received the treasure, man, their life was totally changed. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven's like that, like finding buried treasure in a field. But when this man finds the treasure, notice he doesn't extract it from the ground immediately. He goes and covers it up again. Why? Well, we get some insight as we keep reading. Verse 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, the man who discovered this hidden treasure reburied the treasure because he was not the landowner. He does not own the field where the treasure sits. And that poses a big problem. Because if he went ahead and pulled the treasure out of the ground, there's going to be a legal dispute about who this treasure really belongs to. Should it belong to the man who found it? Or should it belong to the landowner on whose land it sat? And the treasure finder doesn't want to get bogged down in that dispute. He doesn't want to risk losing what he has found. So he reburies the treasure in its hidden condition in the field. He then sells everything he has, and with the proceeds, he buys the field. Now there's no uncertainty about who this treasure belongs to. Now it's entirely his. And that is the first parable that Jesus tells his disciples. What's it mean? Unfortunately, Jesus does not explain this parable's meaning. And as a result, there have been many disputes about what this parable means over the years. But before we get into this debate, I think it would be helpful for us to keep reading. Because if you remember last week, we encountered two parables that Jesus didn't explain. And these two parables shared some similarities, the mustard seed and the leaven. And the similarities of these two unexplained parables invited us to consider them as a pair and to interpret them together. And now again, we find another pair of parables that Jesus does not interpret, which have a number of similarities between them. And I think this, again, is an invitation to consider not just the buried treasure, but also the next parable and interpret them together. So let's now read Jesus' second parable to his disciples. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here we've got a merchant, and he's on a quest. He wants to find some quality pearls. Now, we value pearls today, but in the ancient world, they were valued even more highly. They were among the most expensive objects to the ancients. And this merchant wants to buy some quality pearls, presumably so that he can sell them and make an enormous profit. But as he searches for pearls, he discovers one that outshines all the rest. This is like the hope diamond of pearls. And encountering this superb pearl, the merchant sells all that he has and he buys it. 
And that's how the parable ends. Jesus makes no comment on what the merchant does with it. The parable's emphasis is entirely on the pearl's acquisition. So we've got these two parables. Now, before we talk about what they mean, I want us to see their similarities. First, both involve someone discovering an object. Now, how they discover that object differs. In the first parable, the man accidentally stumbles onto the treasure. In the second, the man is seeking pearls. So some interpreters assign great weight to the fact that there's this difference between these two parables. However, I don't think that this difference is particularly significant. Because in the end, what Jesus is emphasizing in these two stories is not how the man found what he found, but rather what he found and what he did with what he, fa with, with, with what he found. So I don't think the issue here is that there's great significance in the fact that one finds it accidentally and one is seeking it. In fact, that idea falls out of both stories almost immediately. Rather, what Jesus is emphasizing here is what he repeats from the first story to the second story. Because repetition always signals emphasis. And in both parables, a person discovers an object. And in both parables, what they discover is an object of immense superlative value. We're told that the great pearl was of great value. And buried treasure, likewise, would be quite valuable. And when the discoverers saw this valuable, immense, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to acquire the treasure or the pearl, we're told that both finders went and sold all that they had. They were willing to pay an immense cost to acquire this valuable object. And they did. So those are the features of these two parables. How should we interpret them? Well, like I said earlier, unfortunately, Jesus doesn't explain them. And so that means we've got to try to figure these out for ourselves, which means that necessarily our interpretation here is going to be more uncertain than our interpretation for the other parables where Jesus just tells us what they mean. But does that mean that we're left in the dark? No. Back in verse 12 of this chapter, Jesus said that for his disciples, for those who belong to him, his parables are meant to confer spiritual knowledge. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. So if we belong to Jesus, we should understand. Jesus' decision to not explain this parable here is not him hiding the truth from us. It's not like we have become the unbelieving crowds that he wants to keep in the dark. No. Jesus means for us to understand what he's saying. So then why does he not explain these parables clearly? Well, apparently because he thinks he doesn't have to. Because he's already conveyed the meaning of these parables in the instruction he's already given the disciples in the previous chapters of this book. And this is a really important point I would draw your attention to if you ever study Matthew 13 on your own. The big themes of this chapter, the big themes of most of the parables in this chapter, are things Jesus has already taught about in the first half of this book. Let me give you an example from the parable of the sower. Remember there were four types of soil, four responses to the gospel. First were people who hard-heartedly rejected the gospel because of Satan's influence. Man, we've seen that in Matthew, haven't we, in chapters 9 through 12? Second are people who fall away after encountering persecution. Jesus has a lot to say about that in chapter 10. Third, there are people who are dominated by the anxieties of this life. Jesus talked about that in chapter 6. And fourth, there are people who believe and bear great fruit. And Jesus talked about that in chapter 7. So when we look at something like the parable of the sower 
and see that Jesus has already talked about the same ideas that the parable puts forth. We're supposed to recognize, oh, this is like what Jesus said a few chapters ago. And we're, we're to read the parable in light of what he's already said in those other portions of the book. Now, here again, we've got parables Jesus doesn't explain. And I think the reason he doesn't explain them is because the disciples should have been able to figure out what they meant from what Jesus already told them. And readers of Matthew's gospel should be able to figure out what these mean from what we read in chapters 1 through 12. So, how should we understand these parables? I think we've got to start by asking this question. Where else in Matthew does Jesus talk about something like finding treasure or seeking pearls? Interestingly, there's just one other part of this book where Jesus repeatedly uses the words treasure and seek. And that's in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 6 and 7. And in Matthew 6 and 7, Jesus is speaking about materialism. And he urges his followers not to be anxious about material concerns. He says things like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Instead of being materialistic and anxious when things turn against us in our bank account or in society, Jesus says, no, 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 here's what you should do, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Find a similar exhortation eight verses later, Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It's an invitation to seek that which belongs to God's kingdom. So based on this strong similarity of vocabulary, I think we should understand Matthew 6 and 7 to be the backdrop of these parables of the buried treasure and the pearl of great price. And if that's correct, then the logic of these parables runs like this. There is something of great value out there, something of inestimable worth, which is greater than the greatest fortune in this world. And that supremely valuable thing is the kingdom of God. It's belonging to Jesus and having the promise of eternal life, the promise of one day residing in his kingdom when he will rule in perfect righteousness, which will never end. And being part of that, Belonging to Jesus, that's something you should intensely desire because this evil world is fading away. It's much better to hitch your wagons to something that's going to endure, right? So we are to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. We are to seek to follow Jesus. We're to turn away from everything else and trust him and serve him and follow him. But acquiring something as valuable as the kingdom of God comes at a tremendous cost. Just like the buried treasure and the great pearl cost everything for the men who found them, so too becoming a part of God's kingdom proves to be costly and all-demanding of us. Now at this point, some people often object to this interpretation. They'll say, well, wait, wait, wait. In Ephesians 2, we're told that God's salvation is a free gift. So therefore, it shouldn't cost us anything. That is not correct. What Ephesians 2 tells us is we are saved by God's grace through faith and not works. That's how it's a free gift. 
It's not something we merit or earn. However, if we've read Matthew 1 through 12, then we must know that belonging to Jesus is intensely costly because the costliness of following Jesus is something that has been repeatedly emphasized throughout this book, particularly in chapters 8 through 10. For instance, Jesus has said, if you follow him, it's going to cost you comfort and convenience. He told a man in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If Jesus was homeless, why should we imagine that following him will be easy? Moreover, Jesus says that following him necessarily means that we will bear indignity. Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they've called the master of the house, Jesus, Beelzebul, that is Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? To follow Jesus is to be maligned. It's going to cost you your reputation. You'll be hated and slandered by many. Moreover, Jesus says following him means we will suffer unjustly. Matthew 10, 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And moreover, Jesus has said that following him means that we must prioritize him above all else. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, following me is more important than fulfilling the duties of family. You might remember there's a guy who says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I've got to go bury my dad. And what did Jesus say? Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's demanding. Jesus takes priority even over our family duties. Jesus even takes priority over maintaining good relationships within our families. Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, following him can cost you your family. And in the end, Jesus says, following him means it'll cost us even our very lives. Matthew 10, 38, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Twice in this book, Jesus says following him means carrying a cross. People in that day and time knew what that meant. It meant enduring humiliation and torture, making the slow walk that ended with death. Now, friends, if Jesus says following him can cost us our very lives... I think the point is clear. Following Jesus can and will cost us everything because Jesus demands priority over everything else in our lives. This may be offensive to us because what we so often hear today in churches is that Jesus, all he's asking from us is that we pray a brief prayer and get some eternal fire insurance and then get back to the lives that we used to live. Friends, that is false. We heard earlier from Luke 14. Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is the opposite of easy believism, right? And the issue here is not that Jesus wants to turn us into some kind of 
homeless monks without any property. No, what Jesus is saying is he is more important than everything we have. He is to have total priority such that if he told us to put our bank accounts at zero, he would have every right not only to demand that but to expect that we should comply. Following Jesus is costly in that way. It takes priority over everything. It might even demand that we surrender all. And really it does. Because the pursuit of the kingdom demands all that we are and have. And if you say, hey, you know, I don't know if I buy into this. You know, the gospels are tough. I just want to hear about Paul. Paul's going to keep me safe and tell me it's just simple, right? Well, let's listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says the same thing Jesus does. Maybe we hear these words so much that we've forgotten what they're actually saying, but Paul says God has a right to expect that we will devote our bodies and minds to him at all times. That we would live as sacrifices totally dedicated to him. That we would retrain our minds to recognize what God wants so that we would increasingly think like he does and be ever increasingly conformed to his character and obey him more. That is the worship God wants and deserves from us. It's total. It's demanding. It's costly. And I think that's what these parables are telling us. Now, again, some people would very much disagree with this interpretation. They would say, well, if that's right, then this is saying we can purchase our salvation through our obedient deeds. That if we obey God enough, we can buy or earn or merit inclusion into God's people. To be clear, we cannot buy or earn a place among the saved people of God. And I don't think these parables are saying that we can. But what I'm saying is that throughout Matthew's gospel, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we are repeatedly warned that following Jesus comes at a heavy price. It demands all. And that means that Jesus expects we're willing to pay that price if we follow him. Again, from Luke 14, he says, Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Jesus wants us to know how costly following him is going to be from the outset. And I think that's what these parables teach. And yet, they teach us that Jesus and his kingdom are so valuable, they're worth us gladly paying that cost. Now, for a moment, I want to consider the other major interpretation of these parables, which is very well known. And the other inter interpretation says that the man who's buying the valuable objects in these parables is Jesus. So Jesus is buying believers, and he's doing so at the high cost of his own life. Now, certainly, Jesus paid a great price to buy the church. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 1 says, you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited by, by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is true that Jesus has sacrificially and lovingly paid a great price for us. But I think in the end, there are two reasons why Jesus cannot be the, the buyer in these parables. First, and most significantly, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has not yet revealed that he's going to die. He doesn't start talking about that until chapter 16. 
And he doesn't explain the significance of his death until chapter 20. So if Jesus gives a parable to his disciples at this point in the story and doesn't interpret it, expecting them to figure out what it means, there's no chance they can understand what it means because Jesus hasn't yet told them that he's going to die. And he won't do that for several more chapters. Second, if we take the buyer in these parables as a picture of Jesus, we're going to wind up with some really odd theological pictures. For instance, in both parables, the buyer seems surprised to encounter the valuable object. Friends, Jesus wasn't surprised by his mission. It was the eternal plan and purpose of God that he should come and die. Second, in, in both parables, the buyer desires to acquire the valuable object because of its innate beauty or worth. But Romans 5 tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christ's sacrificial love for us was a compassion upon our wretchedness, not an attraction because of our beauty. And third, in both parables, notice that the buyer pays something less valuable to obtain something more valuable. So if the buyer is Jesus, this would mean that the value of the death of the Son of God is worth much less than us. We're more important than Jesus. That cannot be right. So for all of these reasons, I respectfully disagree with the notion that the buyer in these parables is Jesus. No, the idea is this. If God graciously confronts us at some point in our lives with the reality, the beauty, and the glory of the kingdom of God, with the person and work of Jesus, if we see that Jesus offers to make us new, to blot out our sins, to make us part of his people, that is something that should appeal to us in a profound way because that is a generous and kind and beautiful and infinitely valuable offer. We should desire to belong to Jesus, but we've got to know it's going to cost us much and it may cost us everything. So will we pursue this object of inestimable glory and worth despite its cost? Or will we turn away from that which is ultimate because it just seems so demanding? I think that's the idea. And if that's correct, then we've got to ask ourselves some questions. First, what do you think about Jesus? Do you see value in him? Not like the crowds did. Oh, here's someone that can give me stuff. Here's someone that can make me rich or give me health or make my life easier. No, do you see true value in Jesus? Do you see he is glorious and kind and gracious and merciful? Do you see that there is peace available that comes from having your sins forgiven? Do you see that liberation is possible because Christ will make you new? Do you see that he loves you, that he died for you? Do you want to belong to Jesus because of who he is and what he's about? Or do you just want the goodies? Are you willing to follow Jesus and suffer all of the indignities and conflicts and heartbreaks that come from it? Do not imagine that you are exempt from them. Living 2,000 years later in the USA, there are people in this room who could tell you stories that following Jesus has cost them a lot. Friend, if you truly apprehend the great value of Jesus and his kingdom, you will see it is worth giving all to follow Jesus, as the characters in these parables did when they beheld an object of great value. But maybe today you are following Jesus, and, and yet you know there are things Jesus is calling you to give up to serve him. 
sins that he wants you to war against, costs that he wants you to bear, which you say, I'm not willing to pay that. Changes in your relationships or the way you conduct yourself at home or at work. Friend, what will you withhold from Jesus who gave all for you? Let us see that Jesus has the right to reign over our entire lives and we do not have the right to withhold anything from him. Let us redouble our commitment to him and our willingness to pay whatever cost to follow him. All right, we come now to our second point, which is much briefer, and it's this. Do not reject the king. Jesus now tells another parable to his disciples. Look at verse 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. This would be something that the disciples are very familiar with seeing because they all lived in Galilee, which is really a, 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 the entire economy of Galilee was based around the sea. In fact, four of Jesus' disciples were themselves fishermen, so they would all understand this picture. Now, the net Jesus is talking about was used like this. It was connected to two boats, and as the boats went across the lake, the net would be dragged through the sea, and it would catch things. It would catch plants, it would catch trash, and it would catch fish of various kinds. And indeed, Jesus says this net in verse 47, gathered fish of every kind. But then after your net was full, what you'd have to do is sort out what it had caught. Verse 48, Jesus says, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. Now here Jesus describes a practice that every one of the disciples would have seen many times. Fishermen painstakingly sorting out their nets, separating good, edible, marketable fish from everything else. And that's the third parable. What's it mean? Well, thankfully, Jesus explains this one to us. Verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If this sounds familiar, it should. Because what Jesus says here is almost identical to what he said in last week's passage about the wheat and the weeds. In that parable, Jesus says there will be a long period of time in which the kingdom of God exists in a world that's full of both believers and unbelievers. And that's the world we live in today. But one day, history is going to end. And on that last day, there is going to be a final separation of the righteous, of believers, from the unrighteous, from unbelievers. We saw last week that for believers, for those who have trusted Christ... We receive Christ's righteousness, and our final destiny is this, according to verse 43 of this book. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. It's a glorious picture for believers. But we saw last week that a very different destiny awaits the unrighteous, awaits unbelievers. And this is what this parable of the dragnet is all about. A time of separation and judgment is coming. When the angels will be sent out by Jesus to gather up all those who do not bend the knee to Christ. And Jesus tells us the truth that these people will face a horrible condemnation. Jesus again compares their eternal destiny here to the fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. It's a picture of hell. And what Jesus again emphasizes here are the characteristics of the inhabitants of hell. 
their tears which speak of anguish and torment, and their gnashing teeth which reveals their continued unrepentant sinful rage against God. Speaking about hell is very difficult because it is a horrific reality. But we need to know first that it is real. Nobody in the Bible talks about hell more than Jesus. Second, we need to know that hell is a place filled with the unrepentant. That is who goes to hell. Third, hell is a place of great torment. Fourth, I want you to see here that the torments of hell are experienced consciously. Crying and gnashing teeth are conscious acts. And fifth, we will see in chapter 25 that hell endures forever. Hell is the most terrible fate imaginable. It is the tragedy of the ages. And so what this parable teaches us is an obvious lesson. Don't go to hell. Don't reject Jesus. Turn to Jesus in repentant faith and live now, we might think, well, this is a strange parable for Jesus to tell his disciples. We can see why he warned the crowds about hell in the parable of the weeds. But why does Jesus warn his disciples about hell here? After all, did he not say in this chapter that to them had been given the ability to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Aren't the disciples saved? Well, to be sure, in some way, God has opened the eyes of most of Jesus' disciples at this point. But there was at least one person sitting in that room who was destined for hell. Judas was there. And Jesus will say about him later in this book, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. If nothing else, Jesus here is lovingly warning Judas. And friends, Jesus gives us in this parable a loving warning. Hell is real. And just like among Jesus' disciples, there were people sitting in the room who were confident that they weren't going to hell, who needed to be warned because they were actually going there. And what I'm worried about right now is that some of you sitting here might be in that same situation. And I'm not just talking about the visitors. Friends, do not harden your heart to God's word. Do not harden your heart to the gospel. Do not harden the heart, your heart to the demands of Jesus and, and his claim over your life. The message of this book is clear. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come. The end has begun. Turn to Jesus and live before it's too late. Turn away from whatever it is you don't want to give to him and follow him. Friends, do not reject the king. Do not reject his summons. I beg you, take this warning seriously. Hell is real. It is unimaginably awful. Do not go there. Turn to Jesus and live. We come now to our last point. And here we see that those of us who do belong to Jesus must learn God's word so that we can pass it on to others. And Jesus has now finished giving his parables about the kingdom. And he asks the disciples a question. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. You've got to hand it to the disciples. They have a high estimate of their own ability to grasp the truth. We'll see over the coming chapters that they might not have as much insight as they think they have. But Jesus did tell the disciples earlier that they should understand his parables. And the disciples did seem to glean some truth from his parables because Jesus doesn't dispute their assertion that they have understood him. 
So the disciples have indeed been built up by the parables like Jesus said they would. But now he's got one more lesson for them in this conversation. Verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is another very difficult saying. It's really like another parable that Jesus gives them. But this time he's not talking about the character of the kingdom. This time he's talking about what happens when someone is trained or in Greek literally is discipled for the kingdom. And here Jesus talks about a scribe who has been discipled for the kingdom. What on earth is he talking about? Well, lots has been, lots have been, uh, has been written about this verse. And unfortunately, most commentators who have written about it say, man, this is really difficult and unclear. So I'll tell you what I think verse 52 means, but, you know, we could be wrong here. In first century Judaism, the scribes were basically the teachers of the law. They taught people God's word. And if a scribe came to follow Jesus, what would happen is that scribe would not only remember his own training in Judaism, he was also going to learn some new ideas. He was going to understand where Judaism really pointed. It pointed to Jesus and to Jesus' kingdom, to his death and his resurrection and to his reign and to his commands. So this scribe would wind up knowing things old, things Jewish, and things new, things from Jesus. And Jesus says somebody trained like that Becomes like the master of a house. This word in Greek appears in many of Jesus' parables. And it speaks of a wealthy landowner. And just like a wealthy landowner would have a treasury, a stash of stuff, some of which was quite old and some of which was quite new. And just like that landowner might see value in sometimes using things that were old and new, the Jewish scribe who has come to Christ can do the same. He knows the Old Testament and he knows what Jesus has taught him. And so he is able to draw on all that he has learned, old and new, and he is to pass his knowledge on to others. Now, why does Jesus say this here? I think the idea is this. Jesus' disciples are going to become like the scribe he describes in this verse. Because the time is coming when the disciples are going to have to go forth and teach the truth about Jesus to the rest of Israel and the rest of the world. And as part of their ministry, they're going to have to draw on their knowledge of the old and the new. They're going to have to be able to say, here's how the Jewish scriptures point to Jesus. Because they're going to argue with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elites of Judaism. They're going to have to be able to interact with the old truths. And they're going to also have to set forth the new. Now, thankfully, they're not going to have to figure this out on their own. In Luke 24, Jesus says, he, he, there's, a, there's, there's a point where Jesus opens the disciples' mind to understand the scriptures. Jesus would make the connections for them. He would show them how to integrate the old with the new. And we benefit from the knowledge Jesus gave his disciples because this book of Matthew is filled with proofs that show us that Jesus is the culmination and fulfillment of the Old Testament. It contains Jesus' new revelation about who he is and what he's doing also. But the big idea here is this. The disciples' training was going to put them in the position of being able to explain the message of Jesus and his kingdom by drawing on ideas that came from both Judaism and ideas that originated with Jesus. And this prepared them to be able to discharge the commission that Jesus gives them in the last verses of this book. To go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Those words were given to Jesus' original disciples and they still apply to those of us who belong to Jesus today. 
We are to learn the truth, the truth of the Old Testament and the truth of the New Testament. And we are to draw on what we have learned and set it before others. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, there are a few things I think we need to take from this point. First, the path of discipleship is paved with the word of God. Very often today, we confuse discipleship with hanging out. They're really quite different. And there's nothing wrong with hanging out. It's a good thing to do. We should hang out with fellow believers. But discipleship is distinctly related to God's word. That's why Jesus spent so much time teaching his disciples. And not only did he teach, he wanted them to understand what he said. Because look back at verse 51. He says, hey, are you guys getting this? He wants to make sure the disciples understand. In the same way today, if we want to be disciples who are trained for effective service and the furtherance of God's kingdom, we need to know what God's word says. We need to know who God is. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what Jesus has done for us and why it matters, his death and his resurrection. More than that, we need to understand what Jesus wants from us, repentant faith to enter a relationship with him, and then a life of continuing faith and obedience. And friends, we can't obey Jesus if we don't know what he commands us to do. All of these things are things that we have to learn and think about and understand and remember so that we can put them into practice. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a growing, discipled Christian. We don't want to run from the word. We want to run to the word. And we want to spend time in the word, particularly alongside other people that want to learn it with us or who can help us understand it better. And friends, importantly, this means that we have to be teachable. If we spent a lot of time in church over the years, it's very easy to begin imagining that we sit over the word rather than under the word. That when we come to church, our function is to sit here and say, well, I'm not here to learn. I'm here to listen. And maybe I agree with what this fellow is saying, and maybe I don't. Friends, that approach isn't going to do you one whit of spiritual good. That approach closes your heart to spiritual truth. That approach shuts you off from hearing truths that you need to know. Because it is not for the people of God to sit over God's word. It is for the people of God to sit under God's word and to receive it. So when you come to church or meet with an elder or with another saint here to talk about the scriptures, come with a teachable spirit. I'm not saying we shouldn't be discerning. We should. Be a Berean. Check everything that you hear and make sure that it's true. But always come to God's word with an open mind and an open heart. But second, the path of discipleship isn't just about us growing. It's also about us tending to others. Jesus didn't just invest in these 12 guys and call it a day. He discipled people who would go and disciple other people. And how did they do it? by setting forth what they had learned, by proclaiming not just the gospel, although that's a big part of making disciples, but as Jesus says in Matthew 28, they were to transmit all that he had commanded. Discipleship means we've really got to learn the word quite well. So I want to ask you this, how well do you know God's word? Do you have a hunger to know it better? If not, why not? That's a very dangerous position to be in. If you say, well, I belong to Jesus, but I don't really care to hear from him, why in the world would you claim to belong to Jesus and not be interested to hear what he has to say? But if you do have a hunger to know God's word, what are you doing about it? Do you read your Bible? Do you come to church with regularity? Are you attending other opportunities that we put forth to hear the word taught? 
When you come to church, do you come with a teachable heart? Do you come wanting to learn and be instructed? If not, quite frankly, why are you here? Do you have anyone reliable that you can talk with about the scriptures when you have questions? Husbands and fathers, you need to become this person for your families. Mothers, you need to become this person for your children. Church elders, you need to become this person for the congregation. Do you have anyone that you're pouring spiritual truth into? Whether it's evangelizing an unbeliever or building up a fellow brother or sister. Friends, God has given us his word so that we might learn it, so that we might obey it, and so that we might pass it on to others all for the glory of God. Are you doing that? So to finish up this morning, today we've seen three really important truths. We have seen that the kingdom of God, despite its high cost, is infinitely valuable and we must seek it. We've seen that we must not reject the king because the consequence is infinitely tragic if we do. We must learn God's word so that we can pass it on to others. Jesus wanted his hearers to learn these truths and act upon them, and he wants us to do the same. So he who has ears, let him hear.